I'm Chuck Norris, and I approve this game. Between the time when gamers played with miniatures and chainmail, and the rise of the Wizards of the Coast, there was an age of advanced role-playing undreamed of. And onto the Skygas, destined to bear the jeweled crown of TSR upon a troubled brow. It was given to teach us all how to roll for initiative. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, let's get ready to rumble! This is the Roll for Initiative podcast, the volume number three, issue number six. DM Vince sitting with DM Nick. Howdy, howdy, howdy. And DM Chad. Hey, yo. DM Matt is off this week. He's doing his own DM Matt things. So, uh, yeah. Um, so hopefully you guys have been enjoying the 2014 edition of our show. You know, we had two shows, Record of Lodos, and then we had the Contessa, and then we had the talk about play-by-email and play-by-post that Chad and I went to great detail, and Nick somehow wasn't on the show, I think. I was there. I was just oh. listening. <laughs> I mean, it was a lot of it was new information. I'd never done like play by post or play by email. So, yeah, I'm surprised you haven't done that in all the years of uh, being online and gaming. No, you know, I, I just never really wanted to play that way. I just I, I like face to face. Oh, you yeah. know, that's that's just that's just the way I how I roll. Yeah, you know, it's it's really not for everybody. A lot of yeah. people I know aren't into that, and you know, it's just one of those things. Some people mm-hmm. do, and some people don't. Yeah. Sometimes you just, if you can't find a game, you got to get your fix somehow. That is true. I've I've read that from uh, many forums where people they say, you know, I live out here in such and such area because I moved there, and I can't find any place to game. That's why it's such for somebody like that. It's a great tool. They have. Yeah. Yeah, it's like methadone for uh, face-to-face. <laughs> I would set a tool, not a drug, but hey, you want to go that route, fine. <laughs> well, when I was living in Pennsylvania, I had a problem finding groups big time. And and then when that group kind of fell apart and uh, yeah. I had nobody, so I had to start playing online. Right. So I wanted to play playing all my uh, games on Roll20 and everything. So, I mean, it was the best thing, but at least I still had fun. still able to DM, so... Absolutely. Oh, yeah, exactly. And previous to that, I mean, in the past, back before we had things like Roll20 and uh, the ability to get on Skype all the time, you know, you would just mm-hmm. do play-by-email, play-by-post. Right. Hmm. Yeah, so there. So uh, yeah. this weekend mm-hmm. passed uh, the start of my Shadowrun game. And how did that go? Good. Uh, it, there was uh, three of us that showed the fourth person couldn't make it. Uh-huh. But the the GM was fine with that because he was his first time GMing the game himself. So uh, we got into some trouble because my character owns a bar, nightclub, slash strip club. <laughs> hey, all right. Yeah, so and it's in the dive area. Aren't they so, all kind of the same thing in a way? Uh, no, not really. Well. 
So apparently this gang that he made up called the Thumbs Up Gang. <laughs> the Thumbs Up Gang? Yeah, and they have the little patch on their jacket with a little thumbs up. <laughs> sounds a little too clean. Hey. Sounds, sounds like, a, sounds like a, a, a gang from like the 1920s. Yeah, we're the, we're the Thumbs Up Gang, hey! Yeah. Hey, on, guys? <laughs> I, I imagine all these... Go? I imagine a bunch of guys who just venerate the Fonz. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be more like the, the 60s, I thought, right? 50s. Yeah. 50s, 50s, 60s, yeah. whatever. As long as you don't jump the shark. Uh, don't jump any sharks. Yeah, so we had a great time. The The adventure started off with the thumbs-up game and trying to extort money from the bar, and we wound up having a shootout. And um, Well, doesn't every Shadowrun game end up in a shootout anyway? Yeah. <laughs> and, then our, and then our street samurai wound up getting arrested because he was just acting stupid when the police showed up. So he got arrested, and and my character didn't press charges because he tried to break back into the bar after leaving the bar when he, when I needed help. So, hey, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Yeah, that's right. And then we found there was some type of plot that we uncovered with a shadow military group next door, jamming the Matrix, and they were trying to recover some some type of we think it's some type of research that was in the research lab at the top building next door in the middle of the ghetto, of course. Sure, yeah. of course. Because every Where research else would lab, you put a research facility? Yeah. Every research lab is in the middle of the ghetto. Right. Yeah, but we uh, yeah. One, one of us almost got uh, our rigger almost got killed. But I'm, I'm playing a decker, and I was a, I escaped fine along with the rigger at the end. So, Fun so game. you're playing like the guy who's surfing the surfing the web, huh? Yeah, I'm the the, the, the hacker. You're the techie, huh? Yeah. I'm your a, character's like this is so awesome. No, 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 I'm no. Surfing the web. No, no, no. No, I'm like one of those cool combat deckers. So. See, I would be like totally the opposite. He would have the voice just like this. <laughs> like Stu Goldman from the Family Guy? Yes. <laughs> or Neil Goldman, I should say. Yeah. Okay. So what about you, Nick? What have you been doing? Um, just trying to ramp up a little bit more on my campaign. I'm ready to start DMing again for my regular group, I think. Um, I've been doing a little more work, research on my campaign of using the anomalous subsurface environment, the one that's kind of a gonzo uh, kind of uh, mix of science, uh, super science and sorcery. Thinks Thunder the Barbarian <laughs> and the pilot episode of Korgoth of Barbaria, and you're pretty much there. Oh. So, <laughs> oh, so okay. it's... It's kind of be it's going to be like that. I'm going to be using first edition AD and D rules, but for like for uh, psionics, I'm not going to use the psionics rules. I'm just going to use the mental uh, um, abilities chart out of Gamma World. And it's, that works. It's, it's a lot easier. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure. I, I, I I've tried psionics. I'm like no. <laughs> you guys know where I stand on that, but that's all right. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm I just can't. Ah, it's just too much of a headache trying to work out the psionic rules in, in mm. AD&D for me. So I'm just going to port over stuff from Gamma World, and I'm going to try to run it as loosey-goosey as possible, just kind of run it off the cuff and see how things go. Not a whole lot of, um, you know, stuff pre, uh, pre-done. pre I'm just going to go with basic, basic plot, basic premise of certain things, and I'm just going to go from there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really uh, just get out of my comfort zone and try something new. Try something oh, yeah. new. Why don't you try, like, 4th edition? That's new. I said new, not crazy new. Oh, okay. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> That's just silly. 
that's just that's that's just crazy talk. I don't know what the heck you're talking about, Dan. And what about you, Mr. Chad? Uh, well, you know, I started a new job this week, so that's kept me kind of busy having to no navigate excuse. my way into Chicago every morning. But uh, this weekend, I I did try to uh, get my uh, my play by post game revved back up again because transitioning from jobs, it had kind of stalled out there for a couple uh, for about a month. But we're revving it back up again, and uh, the characters are all starting to post again, and you know, as they make their way through the nine hills. Mm. Yes, yes. I'm I'm supposed to be joining that campaign as soon as I can get my button gear. Yes, and uh, you know, whenever you're ready, we'll work out a character. Yes, I think I'm playing a barbarian. I'm pretty sure about that. On a barbarian in hell, that should be fun. Bobby the Barbarian goes to hell. Well, since I can't play the Cavalier, so. Because it ruins yeah, the campaign. <laughs> not into the Cavalier class. That's kind of like my psionics there. I, yeah, I, I don't do the Cavalier because I, re- I let a player do a Cavalier one time, and that's when I realized where all these, you know, I, I'd always heard a lot of, of other DMs talk about how, ugh, I hate it when I have to run <laughs> one of the players as a Cavalier because they can kind of imbalance the game. And I was like, eh, I could do it. So I let the guy play it, and sure enough, it, every time we got together to play, he he was telling me about a new way that his character was, you know, and it's, it's per the book. And I was like, yeah, all right. Well, were you using the book, or were you using the Dragon Magazine that corrected the book? Oh, we were using the book. We didn't well, use the Dragon uh, Magazine. That's uh. why. <laughs> if you use the Dragon Magazine, it makes the class way less powerful than what's in the book. Yeah, what was that Dragon Magazine article, by I, the way? Don't know offhand. I actually have the class printed out because I was using it. It was. I'll have to take a look. You know what? I think I do know what issue that is. I'll take a quick gander. Yeah, offhand, I don't know, but I, I I have corrected it, and it makes the class very, very less powerful. Yeah. Well, give it a read. You know, well, maybe. Yeah, it drops the hit dice for one. Drops all a lot of the the negative level stuff that the class has, and. Good things, good things. So definitely give it a try. Also, I, I meant to say to you guys this week when I was cleaning up and uh, rearranging my uh, my loft here, my man cave. Like Nick, you have a man cave too now, right? I certainly do. I'm in it right now. The right. Fortress of Solitude. Yes. I as well. So we all have our man caves. Well, I was rearranging my man cave with my books, and I came across two books that I don't remember buying. I must have bought them at Gen Con, but it was called Cult. Anyone remember that game? I've heard of it. Mm. You got me on that one. Huh? I've, I, I understand it's pretty dark. I stumped Chad. <gasps> yeah, you got me on that one. Uh, I, I I know there's a game out there, I believe it's called Witchcraft, I didn't, uh, but uh, you got me on Cult. Yeah, I wasn't sure. There was two books, Cult and then Legions of Darkness was the supplement that came with it. I had a rubber band around it. I must have bought it at Gen Con for a couple bucks, thinking it was part of something World of Darkness, but apparently it's its own game. And now I'll be uh, perusing through that this week, because I'm kind of interested in what it's all about. Yeah, let us know what you think. Oh, I will. I definitely will. And they'll come back like, why did I buy this? No. Yeah. Well, there's there's a couple things I found. I found the uh, also the the module that Jason and I bought uh, Gen Con 2010 when that guy tried to put the AD&D and TSR logos on his module. Yeah, I got one of those too, yes. <laughs> do you oh, actually, I remember that. Do you have the first printing or do you have the second one? 
I don't. I had the first printing, I think. Okay, because the first printing had the actual Advanced Dungeons and Dragons logo on it. Yes. And yeah, it was called TSR1. Yes. As the module number. But mm-hmm. uh, the bonus I have is the guy signed it for me. <laughs> ah. I remember reading Dirty Adventure. It really isn't that. It, there's like massive typos and stuff in there. Yeah, and it's not that great. No. I mean, it's not. It's not like, you know, the forced Oracle one that, Ooh. like, and for, oh my God, that was just, ugh. We couldn't stop <laughs> laughing on that one, too. No, this is just as laughable, but not as bad. Yeah. I think I, I'm just going to hold it as a, a memento piece, because the guy had to change it, apparently, after all. Yes, curiosity, if, if anything. Yeah. Maybe we should do a review of it one show. Uh-huh. Maybe. Maybe. Definitely a good idea. Okay, cool. Uh, so anyway, why don't we head into, uh, we have no stars this week, Nick, right? None, because nobody cares. <laughs> nobody 2014 starred us yet. No, no, we haven't had any since October. Just saying that, everybody out there, you know, none since October. Well, Come you know. Come on, people, let's go. We are backlogged in shows, so, um, probably the shows of you, you saying, give us a star haven't come out yet. <laughs> oh, okay, well, <laughs> keep going. Yeah, keep going. Come on, people. All right, let's head into some sage advice. Sage advice. Sage advice this week. We have uh, we have a voicemail and we have an email. But uh, I'm going to play the voicemail first. But in case you're wondering, you can always pick up your phone and dial 570-865-4210, the hotline. And it'll get you directly to us. Uh Pretty much anybody can call it, and you can speak as long as you want. It's not a Google thing. It's a Skype voicemail, and it's pretty good quality, so you don't have to worry about it. So but please don't ramble. Yes. Uh, ramble only because Nick says no. Ah, well, thanks. <laughs> so uh, sit back, relax, and we'll play the voicemail. Hey, oh, this is Jacob Nelson, fan of the show. Uh, not really calling in for a question. I do apologize. I'm just curious. You might know by a recent play called Requiem, Requiem for a Dungeon Master. Uh, Bloom Street Theater, Madison, Wisconsin, uh, gonna read, do a retelling of Gary Goggs' life company kept, um, not really like the beginnings of the Dungeon Dragons game. I don't really know how in depth it really goes because there's a lot of, uh, sparse information at this point. I only really know about as much as another podcast gave, sorry. I listen to a lot of podcasts called Mad Stage Podcast. And it's gonna be interesting. Starting tonight, uh, looking forward to it. Just want to see if I can uh, spread as much information about it as possible because, again, information is sparse. I'm sure the publicity is as well. And I think you guys are a good avenue for it because, judging the dragons, I enjoy listening to you guys talk about the old game and uh, I'm a third edition fellow myself. Sorry. Um, <laughs> but I've always been to, meaning to go and do other avenues of gaming, learning to play in different fashions, and going back to the original rules. I intend to do at some point, and hearing how it all plays out is really great fun, and uh, turning the ideas even into rules I do understand. So keep up the good work. Enjoy the show. Bye. So, uh, yeah, we have uh, a third edition player listening to us. Well, you know, nobody's perfect. But anyway, no. <laughs> no. Yeah, nobody's perfect. But to uh, answer his question, has anyone heard for recommend for a Dungeon Master? I've actually... Not heard of that. So what I that? have not heard of that either, but it sounds interesting. So it's like an on stage kind of production. Yeah. Of- why don't we um why don't we see if we could stump Chad? Chad, have you ever heard of it? 
Uh, what is it again? Requiem from a Dungeon Master. No, I haven't. <laughs> okay. Well, you stumped me a lot today. I don't know, Chad. You still have another 30 seconds. <laughs> uh, I'd have to scramble on my internet. <laughs> Come on, Chad. You have 22 seconds. I have a... Do you want to phone a friend? Or... Yeah, can I, uh, can I uh, uh, phone a friend? Uh, you have 10 seconds. <laughs> uh, is it anything like interview with a vampire? <laughs> Three, two... I'm sorry. You lose. <laughs> Courtesy of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire sound effects. Oh my god. Why not? It's funny. It is. <laughs> uh, oh well. No, I actually never heard of, I've not heard of I've not heard of that. That yeah. sounds interesting. Yeah, I definitely have to keep an eye on that and, and see what's going on with it. I've never heard of it myself. But hmm. uh, thought Chad would have so do I get any parting gifts? Uh, no. You get to spend an afternoon with Nick. Hey, all right. Do I get any other gifts? No. <laughs> Too much more no. gifts. Sorry. Anyway, uh, thank you for the uh, voicemail and giving us a heads up. We hope you do look into playing first edition. We're glad you listen anyway. Yes, so go out now and buy your books. Yes, they're pretty cheap, especially if you buy the original books and not the new prints. That's the reprints, yes. Yeah, that are, you know, not cool. Anyway. Or if you get the ones that hey. have to be uh, changed after their initial printing. Yeah, well, those ones do, yeah. I got the reprints. I like them. I don't know. I don't, I'm glad they're reprinted them, but they're, I don't know, they just look weird. Again, I'm going to go with that. And yes, many people who are in my face-to-face gaming group who listen to this show are like, I don't know what you're talking about. They're fine. Especially, I'm talking about Mike. He knows who he is, and uh, he says they're fine. And you know who you are. Yeah, he knows who he is. <laughs> and he said they were fine, and he showed, we put the book side by side. I'm like, dude, just look at it. There's something different. I don't know what it is. Maybe because of the way it's uh, printed and the typeface is different, or maybe because the paper these days and, and printing is a little bit different. I don't know. Yeah, there is a different paper quality for certain. I mean, yeah. besides obvious covers, there's a different quality of the paper. It's not the different. It's a different mill quality. Yeah, it's sure. not that heavy kind of paper that they used, you know, the kind of coarser, heavy paper well, I they think used. it's uh, – I think the difference is – and I could be completely wrong on this, but if you remember, all the stuff that was printed for first edition, I think even second edition too, they had that deal with Random House uh, back uh-huh. in the day. Well, Gary Gygax, well, he um, – was able to talk with Random House, the the publisher there, and you know Random House is like one of the largest publishers in the world, and um, he wanted a quality that was equivalent to like a textbook. He wanted a textbook quality books made that would well, yeah. last, that would get thrown in a backpack or something like that, and it could withstand the test of time. Well, yeah, because people be referencing these books constantly, so he wanted the paper to hold up. Exactly, and his in was I, I, if I remember this correctly, I remember reading it somewhere that one of the people at Random House, their son played D and D, so that was kind of the in for him on getting the Random House deal, and that was that was huge. So and. You know, it's a different print qu- paper quality. I mean, if you look at textbooks and stuff from that time, I mean, it's a different, different quality of paper material. 
Well, I could definitely... Yes, but you know, if you do want to make it more reminiscent of the original printings, just eat some pizza, drop a little bit on the pages, maybe yeah, some spill some chips, get some grease stains. Ah, oh, that's the look. Yeah, you got to spill some Mountain Dew on it. Yeah. yeah, but it has to be throwback Mountain Dew, so... Yes, absolutely. Can't be regular Mountain because that's not what we used back then, so... No, it's got to exactly. be the throwback. Could be Jolt Cola, though. We drank a lot of Jolt Cola. Oh, my God, yes. yes. <laughs> Can you still find that? <laughs> yeah, you, I have no idea. Jolt Cola is actually an energy drink now. They're just called Jolt. Oh. <clears throat> then there was another one called Nitro, too, and it was uh, it yeah. was a it get you juiced up. I remember when Coke was able to just do that by itself, Coca-Cola. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah, back in the day. Those were the days. But I noticed books today, not talking about Wizard of the Coast, just books in general from gaming companies, tend to fall apart a lot. Yes, you're absolutely right. Because they're making books bigger, obviously, because everything's becoming more rules intensive. Mm -hmm. And uh, like, for example, the Shadowrun book, that book is huge. It's like 500 pages or something, almost 600. I'm not sure offhand. uh, But my first book that I bought, already the first 10 pages were falling out. Yeah, my um, what was it? I think I got this. My I think it was the thirtieth or twenty fifth anniversary edition of Call of Cthulhu. That thick one, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and it's got the reproduction of the original box uh, for the cover. Yeah, yeah. My first, I want to say, thirty pages are coming out. They the the binding is the gluing. The yeah. binding is not holding. Yeah, same thing with me. My fifth edition, Call of Cthulhu, is just it's and it's like the first thirty pages because obviously that's the character generation pages, so you're really yeah. hitting those probably most often. And mine are just mine. Literally, some of the pages are already out. They're just kind of in there, you know. Yeah, and I'm yeah. not going to say it's not thick books too because I have a I had two books for. Legend of the Five Rings, the core books for fourth mm-hmm. edition, and they're not that big of books. They're about dungeon master size uh, thickness, probably. Mm-hmm. And I've already gone through two of them with the, them falling apart and having to contact AEG, who gladly replaced the books. But it's just you know they keep falling apart. Yeah, I I, I was like that twenty fifth anniversary of Call of Cthulhu. I was like really happy to get it, and and it's like big as the dungeon master's guy, and it's hardbound. You would think, okay, this is going to last me. First thirty pages are they? They just pulled. I would say within about a couple of years. Yeah. Pulled away from the gluing for those first of the pull thirty pages. Pulled away from the binding, and it's because it's glue. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they don't, back in the uh, they like I, them, even yeah. through the eighties and maybe even in the nineties or early nineties, <laughs> you look at the bindings, like the binding on my. I think the DMG. It's not just glue, but there's a um, there's like a, a threading, a yeah. threading through the glue. Yeah, and, and it just binds better. Yeah, it does. So I wonder yeah. if it's it's cheap, cheaper printing processes and. You know, there was one upside to my uh, Cthulhu book falling apart, and and that was when I went to uh, Gen Con a couple of years ago. Uh, I was getting ready to start a Call Cthulhu. Uh, adventure, and uh, I was reviewing a few things in my book, and one of the guys who just sat down at the table was like, well, that's not a good sign when our, our GM is reading the rules, and I looked up, I said, dude, look at this book. 
do you think this is the first time I've cracked it open? His pages are falling out. (laughs) (laughs) I just love that when you get the smart-ass people like that to sit at your table at conventions. It's like, you know, go away. Yeah, it turned out okay, though. At the end of the game, he actually came over and was, like, complimenting me on the game. I was like, oh, thank you. (laughs) That's uh, cool. But see, it sets your players, if they're new players, it sets them at ease to see your book literally falling apart. You know, surprisingly, out of all books that are huge books, the Pathfinder Core rulebook has not fallen apart since I bought it in, when did it come out, 2010? No, nine, right? I think that's when they came out with Pathfinder. But that book is still fine. Never had a problem with it. Which is surprising compared to, I don't know, maybe it's the quality of the company that would they pick. I don't know. Yeah, it all depends now who they pick to do their printing and how they, uh, yeah, the whole process that they use. I mean, mm-hmm. it's the same. Well, they just don't build books like they used to. Back no. in my day. Back in my day, they we, were using used to steel. Take- <laughs> we used to take two pieces of wood and glue them together and call it a book. <laughs> All right, now let's listen to some public radio. <laughs> oh, God. Well, listen to some public radio here. I think I'll just take a bite of my cookie now. <laughs> yes, take a bite of my cookie. It's delicious. This episode is brought to you by <laughs> Snap Happy Crackle Crackers. <laughs> just try to snap into just one. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, we took that on a tangent there. Anyway, so we have uh, we have one uh, email this week. Uh, we've pretty much cleared out our emails, uh, so I've been trying to spread them out a little bit mm-hmm. to get them uh, read on the show. This one comes from Adam. He says, uh, "Thanks for everything you do, uh, putting out such a fantastic podcast. I love the show. Keep it going. There's no end to how much you can say about first edition AD and D." The DM's Guide describes the manufacture of potions by 7th level or higher magic users on page 116. The most common potions used in the, in the game's IDM are healing potions, but it seems counterintuitive to allow magic users to create potions to heal when their magic cannot heal. I suppose that even though healing magic is a, a, a preview of clerics, magic users might have knowledge of arcane procedures to con- concoct healing potions. So I guess I can wrap my head around that, but in games you DM, do you also allow clerics and druids to create healing potions at 7th level? I am running a weekly Greyhawk game that now has a 7th level cleric, and I want to be fair to him. If you do allow clerics or druids to create potions, do you require them to work with an alchemist, a magic user that must, as a magic user, must do until level 11? And what kind of cost and time do you require the hearing, required to create the healing potions? Happy gaming. Thanks, Adam. Hmm. Good question. Wow. Uh, well, Christopher Watkins here to answer your question. Yeah, it's potions that heal. Magic users, they do what the hell they want. <laughs> Fireballs in your face. <laughs> God. Watch me make a volcano. <laughs> yes. I don't know. Um,. I'm pretty easy going with the whole make potions as long as yeah. you find an alchemist and you can study herbalism. But sure. they're not as powerful as regular potions. I would say they'd be like, you know, you get like a D4 back for hit points. That is kind of an oddity, though. It's like, you know, clerics get uh, healing. They could do cure light wounds or cure serious or whatever it is. But yet magic users, they 
yeah, it's a a potion of healing is considered a magic user creation. Well, because you're you're, it kind of makes sense in a way, because healing is going through faith, and the magic user potion is just a concoction of magical herbs and stuff they put together. Mm-hmm. So, now in that respect, yes, it does make sense. Uh-huh. Yeah, it, it really kind of – it's how you define the potion and what it's doing, I think. Uh, I mean, I have no problem with clerics and druids creating healing potions because in my game, they're not using alchemy to do this. It's more like you know a, a variation of holy water. Mm-hmm. You know, this, this is blessed water that gives <laughs> uh, the divinities life-giving powers you know, through it. Uh, as opposed to, and and like Vince said, I think that would be more powerful uh, because you're kind of getting it from the wellspring of where you know the gods are where life came from to begin with. So you're getting it kind of the from the wellspring of life. Whereas what the magic users are doing and the alchemists, they're trying to copy this to the best of their ability. But uh, it's it, I think it would not have. I don't think. I would allow – I've never actually had a magic user, uh, a, a running player, ask me if they could make a healing potion. So, But uh, you know, now it's a, good, it's a good question, and the way I would probably run it is, okay, they could make cure light wounds, but nothing more than that. Yeah, I get it all the time. Every time I have a game, there's always one player in my group that's always like, oh, can I create healing potions if I find a book of uh, herbal, or, <clears throat> excuse me, herbalism? So i got to run through that. <laughs> Yeah. And say, okay, what level is he? Oh, he's only fourth level right now. Well, then you got to wait till he's seventh. Uh-huh. Right. And again, I, I wouldn't let it go past really cure light wounds because herbalism, you know, is, is it's 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 a, it's like real medicine, I guess. It's not magical. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's using science <laughs> and and they're still going they're not they're still going to need that time to recuperate. And, you know, we're talking like a poultice or something like that. But, uh, you know, a poultice made out of moss and, and, and pig's foot isn't going to have the potency, say, from the blessed waters of, uh, you know, uh, of St. Cuthbert. Well, thus, I was just thinking St. Cuthbert. Well, thus <laughs> I do 1D4 for mine, so. Yeah, and so that you're, you're, that's about what I was saying, so. Except I said it in less words. No. <laughs> exactly. All right, cool. If you want to write into us, it's our, my, RFI staff at gmail.com. And my voice is definitely going for some reason. <laughs> and uh, 570-865-4210, the hotline, where you can call and Nick will answer the phone. No, I won't. Why not? I have one of my kids answer. Oh, God. <laughs> they won't take a message. You know how kids are. Oh, God. yeah, true. Okay, this I'll answer it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's head into some table matters. Typical of all the evil creatures in the world. I'd like to find one with table manners. What are you kidding me? I spent years cultivating the worst table manners on the planet. Table manners. And now table manners. Uh, so for today's issue... We're going to be discussing those magic items that can either make or break a campaign, and oftentimes they do the latter. So they need. We are, of course, talking about artifacts and relics. Oh, I thought we were talking about ladders for a second. Sorry. Oh well, you know, maybe it's the ladder of Saint Cuthbert. Ooh. The, la- the ladder of the gods. 
the yes, stairway the, to heaven. Uh, mm. Bad. We need magical ladders in the game. There aren't mm. any. Wasn't that that, that rope <laughs> trick or something? <laughs> Well, artifacts and relics, uh, now, when you say artifacts and relics to most DMs, uh, they're going to get a concerned look on their face because... Maybe a nervous twitch or two? Yeah, their eye might start twitching. Uh, And if they introduce it into the game, the player's eyes might start twitching. But artifacts and relics are probably, well, not probably, they are the most powerful magic items that you're ever going to run across in a game. And as such, they take considerably more preparation uh, to prepare on the part of the DM because he's now going to have to gauge how that particular artifact and the powers that it possesses, both benign and malevolent, are going to affect his overall campaign. Uh, in my own games, I tend to use artifacts and relics more as a campaign hook in themselves as opposed to simply something you find in a room. How do you guys do it? Campaign hook myself. i got to be honest. I've never used artifacts and relics in my campaigns. Well, a lot of DMs haven't. And, you know, it's because you're talking about, say, you know, the uh, – I don't know, uh, the Eye of Vecna or uh, oh. the Codex of the Infinite Planes. Ooh. There's only one of them in yeah, the right. entire world. In fact, the book even says if you use it in your campaign, cross out, cross it out in the book. Like, actually yeah, put exactly. a line through it in your book. I'm like, whoa, all right. I don't remember reading that, but all right. Yeah, well, at the end, and the reasoning is that if it's already been used once, then it must already be someplace. It's not going to be a random find, most likely. Right. Now, there are some that could be that, you know, uh, there's one I can think of off the top of my head, the Wand of Orcus, uh, which when it's not with Orcus himself, he does like to just kind of drop it into the prime material plane to see what kind of chaos it'll wreak before he reclaims it. But for the most part, if if it's already been introduced into your campaign, then it's already some place that you probably know about and therefore not very likely to be a random find. Maybe not. (laughs) Because if you look on the tables for miscellaneous magic, table one, Uh if you roll a 17, artifact or relic. Right, but that's, we're saying though, say you've already introduced Baba Yaga's hut. Right. Right. So you need to cross that one out. Not, Not all the artifacts and relics. It's just, you know. Right. According to the rules... In a situation like that, say they rolled Baba Yaga's uh, hut, but you've already introduced that in in a in an earlier session, mm-hmm. then according to the book, it's either a clue leading you back to where Baba Yaga's hut is, or it's nothing. You don't find anything. Right. So and and, and you know and here's another thing with the artifacts and relics. Uh, Finding a clue to where one is is just about uh, as big a deal, if not bigger, than actually finding another type of more mundane magical item. Because even finding clues to where a artifact or relic is is something that, according to the DMG, should take up you know perhaps an entire adventure. So it's not like you know, oh well, it's just a clue. 
Well, <laughs> trying to get a clue about where uh, Queen Alicia's Marvelous Nightingale is, you're going to pay out the nose if you go to a, uh, to a sage or somebody with great divination skills because even they are probably not going to be able to just say, oh, it's right here, but they might be able to give you clues to where it is. And that's going to take some of the most powerful divination spells just to get those clues. But then they may go try to find it themselves anyway and give you the wrong clue. Yeah. Very possible. If they, you know, if it's something, uh, you know, that they feel that, oh, my gosh, I would love to have this. Uh, they may give you misinformation, and now maybe they're on the track. Maybe you have a competitor to find it, and now the timetable, the clock is ticking. Who will get there first? Or perhaps... They, if it's if it's a very wealthy sage, maybe he says, "Look, you know, perhaps I could pay you to find it for me." Mm-hmm. Sure, a couple different variations on how you can do that, but I definitely do believe. Uh, you know, I think I said in an earlier uh, episode that uh, my view on dragons is that they're kind of a penultimate creature that you can fight. Well, I think artifacts and relics are penultimate items that you can find. And as such, they, again, they're going to require a lot of thought uh, and preparation on the part of the DM to introduce into his campaign. They should not. And in fact, it says in the DMG, they're never going to just be, uh, oh, look, in that corner, somebody dropped, uh, (laughs) you know, the hand of Vecna. You yeah. know, oh, wait, that's it, not really going to happen. And here's his eye under this dust. Where's <laughs> the head of Vecna at? Uh, you find the weirdest things when you clean your closet. Here's the left foot of Vecna. Left exactly. Foot. So aside from the fact of the preparation that's required to here's place a uh, campaign, the DMG is, is you know, the, another thing that sets them as- apart from all the other magic items you're going to find in the DMG. Uh, is the fact that you will notice when you look at them that the powers, the majority of the powers are split, are, are not even listed. They're blank lines mm-hmm. uh, with a list uh, of tables at the back. I believe there are five tables, uh, and they encompass uh, minor benign powers, major benign powers, minor malevolent powers, major malevolent powers, and prime powers. And then... And- Side effects. Side effects. Uh, and, I, you know, things and, 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 you know, those minor malevolent powers, which usually crop up after just owning the item for a certain amount of re- uh, weeks, uh, which is generally rolled to determine, can do anything from as petty as turning the character's hair white to actually disfiguring them horribly or maybe they become deaf. You know, uh, so and we haven't even gotten into the major uh, malevolent powers, which in, you know could turn you, which could could simply turn you into a demon or or maybe a a lesser servitor of a god, who then comes down and collects you, and your campaigning days for that character are over. Mm-hmm. So just these these real tricky. You know, there there's something that. Got to be very careful about. Now, some players might say, well, okay, I'm going to get around that. I have a hireling, and I'm going to give him the item and <laughs> let him figure out all the bad stuff while I study him. 
and that's not really going to work either because the DMZ lays out very explicitly how to handle uh, a situation like that. And generally speaking, based on the hirelings' alignment, they're either going to be consumed by the uh, greed for the item and kill your character to keep possession of it, run away with it, or they may even say, you know, this thing needs to be destroyed and again, try to run away or kill your character, or they perhaps just, you know, the, about the best you can hope for is that they know, you know, they realize what you, how you've tried to use them and uh, you lose a hireling. Oh, yeah. I ah, could... Hirelings are a dime a dozen. <laughs> they're a dime a dozen, except, except for when they're ho- holding uh, the, uh, you know, the orb of dragon kind. <laughs> Why would you let the, hireling hold that. I mean, that's crazy talk. What if it was that's Nodwick? Crazy. Well, then that's really crazy. Huh. Well, Nodwick getting a hold of something like that, that's just nuts. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, the, a lot of times they'll do it because the player is trying to get clever, and therefore his yeah. character is trying yeah. to get clever, and that's another top Smarter point. Smarter for their own good. <laughs> Smart for their own good, and that's when you have to look at that character's alignment, because would a chaotic good magic user really inflict uh, possible damage upon a hireling so that he could avoid it? Yeah, well, I think so. Especially not lawful good character. Not lawful good. But I don't think a chaotic good uh, character would either, because chaotic good is, uh, you know, they're good. They just believe they're that... They're chaotic the, about it. They're chaotic about it. They're like, well, you know, we we let's let's go around these uh, these rules. Uh, you know, the the end the end justifies the means, but which is exactly what he's doing by giving the artifact to Nodwing, so he won't get hurt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, again, that gets into a whole alignment discussion, which is right. <laughs> but uh, generally Let's speaking, I would there. probably, as a DM, frown upon uh, the 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 chaotic good character who says, "You know what? This could kill me. I'm going to have my hireling do it." <laughs> well, one of the things I think about with the artifacts and relics uh-huh. is when you integrate it into a campaign. I think I don't know it. I it's you put the seeds out there in the campaign for looking for something, and um, you're not the only adventuring party that's going to be looking for this. Oh, I mean, obviously. there are other adventuring parties that are probably going to hear <laughs> the same information at one time or another. So, I think as a DM, you also should prepare a few, at least two, maybe even three NPC groups that are also pursuing. Same artifact. Oh, right. Yeah, that's that's quite possible. You could have a little bit of the old Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, thing going, where you know it's not just Doctor Jones who's looking for the Ark; it's also Hitler's Nazi party. You know? Yes, oh, right. I hate these guys. Oh, sorry. Nazis, <laughs> I hate these guys. That's what I did with uh, my Book of Sorrows campaign. I had. Uh, the group looking for the Book of Sars, which was considered the artifact. I also had the Cult of Asmodeus, who was also trying to find the artifact. And I also had the Cult of the Dragonkind, who was also trying to find the artifact, because the dragons wanted it for their possession. So I had three factions going after this one book. And the fourth faction, the Backstreet Boys. The Backstreet's back all right now. Sorry. They're just, they're just looking for their fame. Right. <laughs> which is, they have lost. But I but- think that would make a really cool 
um, twist on things, they just if the Venturi party just say, you know, okay, we got to find all the different clues to get to this artifact, and we'll find it. Sure, we're going to have some conflicts along the way with monsters and traps and what have you, but other adventuring parties, hmm, that puts a little twist on things. Yeah, and you could go even uh, a step further and say it's not even another adventuring party that is uh, racing against the, uh, you to get that item, but it's the actual creator of the item itself, for instance. And this is uh, this is giving a little bit away in the game that I run right now. <gasps> but well, Spoiler uh, alert, everyone. Spoiler alert. Yeah, a bit of a spoiler alert. And I know some of my players listen to the game and, and uh, listen to the, to the podcast. And Vince, if you're, you're going to actually be in that game. But I don't think it's too much away to I say that. I can hear you. La, 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 uh, la, 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 la. Just, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go la, 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 la while I talk. Yeah. But uh, – no, uh, and, and and Vince actually mentions an interesting thing that ties into it because he talks about his own artifact that he created for his game, uh, the Book of Sorrows. Well, the, the DMG is perfectly suited to, uh, you know, you just use the same tables to give your own artifact powers. But in this case, I used an item that is mentioned in the Monster Manual, Ooh. but not in the DMG, hmm. which is the uh, Ruby Rod of Asmodeus. <gasps> Uh, but that said, uh, that's enough I'm going to say about that, other than the fact that I had to think about what was going to go into it, and perhaps it's not just another NPC party going after it, but what if Asmodeus himself would like to have it back? I would think if something like that was his, he would want it back. Probably. <laughs> probably want it back and now you're racing against the agents of asmodeus or as we said and it says in the dmg orcus has his own wand that he occasionally just kind of lets slip in the primaterial plane but after a while he wants it back yeah whoops oh i think i want that back now you're holding my wand there i'd like to have that back please no mine (laughs) <laughs> so then it gets into an interesting uh, contest of who does the item actually belong to because the most of these items do – artifacts and relics are generally <laughs> not good or evil per se. They're more of a neutral item, but they do have a tendency to instill a longing for the item, which is actually one of the minor malevolent uh, effects of uh, that can be. I, I tend to use it more as a general effect for almost all items well, that you yearn to have it. Well, I think a perfect example of that is the one ring. To rule you know, the, them all. Exactly. Look and what it did to archetype. Yeah, look what it did to the Smeagol. He turned into Gollum. Yeah, it has nice effects. It turns you invisible, but what? it also turns you into a weaker version of, of Sauron himself. Yeah, and it prolongs your life unnaturally, and mm-hmm. you tend to uh, – and, and you you want to possess the thing. It becomes your precious Exactly. So if you're using an artifact, that's another thing to consider is, uh, you know, if if your party is trying to find it, is there somebody else trying to find it? Is it another uh, competing group of NPCs, another NPC party? Is it is it the creator of the device itself? And Mm -hmm. when you're talking about artifacts and relics, you're really very rarely 
you're not always talking about, you know, just some magic user created it like, you know, he might do another item. You're talking about gods and devils and archdevils and greater demons and very powerful things uh, create these. Yes. So if somebody else want, is is competing for it, it may be somebody that's going to be very difficult to defeat. It's created by the power of Grayskull. <laughs> by the power of Grayskull. <laughs> but, you know, Grayskull itself could have been an artifact, the castle, and not all artifacts are going to be, you know, easy to carry around. Right. That could be easy to fit in your pocket. Well, yeah, Grayskull was actually an artifact, if you think about it, you're right. Yeah. I think it is, and I think it, I think it would very much equate to, say, the Throne of the Gods, which, uh, you know, you obviously cannot put that in your pouch, and I don't no. care if you do have a bag of holding. Well, you want to talk about an artifact that is something that you just can't you know, hold with one, let alone two hands, is the machine of Lum the Mad. Oh, I yeah. Mean, this thing is ginormous. If you look at the description of it, it was says the machine was used by Baron Lum to build an empire, but what has since become of the ponderous mechanism, none can say. Legends report it has 60 levers, 40 dials, and 20 switches. So it's and it says it's bulky and very heavy, five thousand five hundred pounds. Oh, bag of holding could carry that. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> cannot. But sure, sure. Why not? <laughs> cannot be moved normally, and any serious jolt will set off, set off, and then destroy one of the four functions of the artifact, which can never be restored. Nice. It has a, both of a size suitable for four man-sized creatures to stand inside. Yeah, that one I always saw. Wasn't that like a vehicle, actually? It was like something from Gamma World. It almost sounds like it. And if you look at the – this is – and in fact, this is probably the one artifact that has the most – or one of the the closest of the most different abilities, different things it could do. It has – let me get this straight here. You can have 15 – um, minor benign effects in this thing. Fifteen uh, minor. Oh wait, minor benign powers. Fifteen major benign powers. Ten of the minor malevolent effects. Ten major malevolent effects. Fifteen prime powers, but five side effects. So. <laughs> Yeah, it's so got all these very powerful. Things. Yeah, very powerful. If not one of the powerful, one of the most powerful artifacts and relics in the thing. But given the size of the thing and what it does, you know, um, I can understand that. So it is though the uh, and, and actually, I've, uh, the 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 very first DM I ever had. Uh, he told. I remember him telling us about the campaign that he played in. And some, but they had actually come across the machine of Lum the Mad, and they used it as a dungeon crawling vehicle. <laughs> you know, I imagine this kind of like I don't know, multi legged caterpillar like machine that they're inside. Sounds of, almost you know. like an AT-AT. <laughs> from yeah, well, essentially, yeah. I mean, for the power that it has, it's five thousand five hundred pounds. What's that? Uh, that's like two and a half tons, almost three tons. Pretty much, pretty so much. So that's like the size of a of an SUV. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that, you know, is it's interesting in itself because that's a Maybe good... Maybe it is an SUV. Ooh. 
not all artifacts and relics need to necessarily be magical in origin. No, although they, they don't. Most definitely seem magical. Like I look at ma- the machine of Lum the Mad. I think if I were fleshing out all those uh, those powers, I would mm-hmm. be looking at things that correspond to science. Yes. Uh, well, the one right below it sounds something like that. The Mighty Servant of Luko. That's what I was thinking of. Not the Machine of Lum the Mad. I was thinking of the Mighty Servant. The of Mighty Luko. Servant of Luko. Uh, that uh, uh, thing, if you read the description, it sounds like it's some sort of quasi-scientific item. Yeah, exactly. And that was actually the one I was thinking of. Yeah, this one, it says a towering automaton of crystal. I love saying the word automaton. (laughs) Automaton of crystal, unknown metals, and strange fibrous material. Mm. Nine feet tall, six feet deep, and some four and a half feet wide. It almost sounds like it's like a robot, a big giant robot. Yeah, we always envisioned it as as a device that was more like a vehicle with all these, you know, and you could get inside of it and drive it around. But from the point of view of a of a of a PC, it would be most magical. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, well, you could introduce a death machine from uh, Gamma World into your into your D and D world, and it would be practically a artifact or relic. So it's another route you can go. Now, if you read the Gazetteers, which I'm a big fan of, uh, you know that in Glantry, they have this this power called the Radiance. And the source of the Radiance is in itself an artifact. And the more you read about the Radiance, the more it, you obviously out of character realize it's radiation. Yes. <laughs> uh, that's leaking out of this, uh, I think it was a spacecraft or something, which would actually be the, you know, the source of the radiance, the artifact itself. Uh, so, again, it's another example where they have taken uh, sci-fi, introduced it into the D&D world, and mm-hmm. uh, essentially turned it into an artifact or a relic. Right. Which I think is kind of cool. And, again, you know... It, you have to think about, you know, something as powerful as the Radiance or something that can do all the things that the machine of Lum the Mad can do. You know, that is going to be very tricky uh, down the road if you give that or one of these items to one of your players because it could very easily break the game. Well, I think one of the ways that you can get around as far as breaking the game is... Besides, like, other adventuring parties trying to hunt down this, you know, the great MacGuffin, whatever it may be, um, is there are going to be other powerful individuals in your game world who are want to get a hold of this artifact or relic, uh, other rulers of other kingdoms, uh, or would-be, you know, despots who uh, want to get a hold of these things. And there's, I mean... I, it's not far a stretch of imagination that you know wars ha- will not start because of the you know one of these. Oh, definitely, things. wars could be started because of mm-hmm. known existence or the reemergence of an artifact or relic. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, look at Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know the Lost Ark, right? That would mm-hmm. most definitely be considered. I would call it a relic. Because in my game, I tend to differentiate artifacts from relics. I tend to say if it was created by a divine source, it's a relic. 
if it's uh, like if it comes from uh, if, you know it's still powerful, but it's not so much from a divine source. More say technological. Well, I'm thinking more like the Sword of Cause or the uh, you know the Eye of Vecna. That I would I probably call that more of an artifact. Uh, I don't know the eye or the hand of Vecna is pretty powerful. Oh yeah, any anything you know like that. But like you need the intervention of a god to get that thing off your body. Exactly. <laughs> and as far as the as the power levels are concerned, you know that that's not such a big differentiation. Obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a powerful artifact is. You're just talking like how it was created. Yeah, I'm just talking about how I differentiate what I call a relic and what mm-hmm. I call artifact. Okay, I see what you're saying there. You don't necessarily have to do that in your game. I just, mm-hmm. I don't know. For I like to organize things, so that's what I do. But right. you don't definitely. It worked just as fine if you if you reverse them, I suppose. Uh, but when I hear relic, I tend to think of you know how the. Uh, how back in in the feudal days, you know, the Templars and everybody were trying to retrieve the relics, right? Yeah, the, the Holy Grail. At their relics, there was, there was the, uh, the what, what was you know, a piece of the cross, one? right? Well, yeah, the piece of the true cross. Uh, what's another one? Well, going on, there's there's a it's whole bunch trapped. of these things. I mean, going from my my knowledge of history, particularly medieval history, and I've actually taken a course on on what are from that period of the artifacts and relics of the period, and and um, how a lot of these things came to be, and it's and a lot of them even um, when they are acquired or if they're kept someplace, a kind of a cult builds up around them because generally it's an artifact or, or you know, a relic of a saint and it's kept in a holy place with inside a particular area and, they're, uh, and they are maintained by particular people within the area and you're going to have a particular kind of a cult built up around this artifact or relic. And you could probably use the same thing here. Maybe... Um, there are people that are protecting this thing. They built up a cult around this particular relic. I mean, well, a, a good one I would think would be like the eye or hand of Vecna. Maybe there are like you know worshippers of Vecna. There's a cult of Vecna out there, and they and they are protecting his artifacts for his you know his second coming or something like that. They won't fall into the wrong hands and are waiting for the chosen one or whatever it may be for your for your plot hook. So that's yeah, another totally thing that you can throw into as your DM toolbox to say, you know what? These are these are just going to be sitting in a dungeon protected by a big bad monster. There's going to be there's there might be some organized um I don't know, organized resistance, but there's an organized effort to keep the artifact safe. Keep it secret. Keep well, yeah, totally agree. And like I think that if ever an artifact or relic were to be unearthed, I guess you would say uh, it's very likely that there will be stiff resistance mm-hmm. from, from the people around it because, like you said, you could have uh, maybe a remote tribe, uh, right. you know, is guarding the, you know, the Eye of Vecna or say, you know, uh, they're guarding 
Maybe they worship the mighty servant of Luca. Those are worshipers. Yeah. <laughs> they, nobody ever gets into the mighty servant, but they actually worship this 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 device. It's just you know got cobwebs over it because it's never been driven, mm-hmm. but it's got this. It's built up a cult around it, and you're going to have yeah. to get you know. It's like when Indiana Jones finds that uh, golden idol's head, right? Right. And, uh, I, I call them the Chocho, <laughs> but uh, you know <laughs> they they're in a way. <laughs> they're kind of like the Chocho, right? Well, they, you know, he doesn't just he, – he, not only does he have to defeat all the traps that have been built up around it, he, he's got to get it past them after he gets it out. Well, another good example of that, I think it's the movie Beneath the Planet of the Apes. You oh, remember yeah. the people who worshipped the, the bomb, the almighty bomb? The bomb. <laughs> yeah. And it was a nuclear missile that they worshipped. Exactly. And – you know, there's and what happens at the end. Charles the Heston dies, which is a rather tragedy. But the apes are learning. Oh, sorry. Yes. Senate with apes get your hands from off men. me, you dirty. Get your hands off me, you damn dirty ape. <laughs> but it's you know, a madhouse. It's definitely another angle, that, another hook. And this mm-hmm. is why you know we said at the beginning that the artifacts and relics are really great campaign hooks and i like to say yes. campaign because i think they're almost too powerful even to just to be the hook for a single adventure i think oh, yeah. no they gotta be a campaign arc one Absolutely. shot one sh- <laughs> <laughs> one shot one and done yeah to me yeah. it's just like you meet uh lolf in the back alley like in that uh, uh like in the dd cartoon <laughs> and she just happens to have you know <laughs> but, uh, it was no, a I, I think even in if her you did career. get it Okay, you know, it was a low time in, in Lowell's career. So Yeah. <laughs> now, wouldn't that the, that necklace that brought them back in time or whatever? No, the, the roller coaster that brought them back in time, that would be an artifact. Absolutely. Could that be. would be an artifact. And, you know, here's another thing, too. If it's not the basis of the campaign when they find it, it's certainly going to affect the campaign after they've found it. Sure, <laughs> like like we were saying just recently, after they find it, Word's going to get out, maybe, one way or another, and other powerful people in the world are going to want to desire this thing, and wars are going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, remember in uh, Conan the Destroyer? Destroyer. Which wasn't nearly as good as the first Conan the Barbarian, obviously, but uh, remember when they have to find the uh, that, that jewel, and there's a weird group of evil clerics, I guess you'd call them. You're talking uh, about the Horn of Dagoth they had to find, I think. Yeah, that was it, the Horn of Dagoth, which in turn they had to use to get the jewel, right? I don't uh, remember there was oh, no, jewel. no, they needed the jewel. They needed the jewel to get the Horn of Dagoth. That's how it worked. Uh, yeah, that was the scene where they, they go into that underground temple and, and the two uh, – what, what was his the name? The wizard's duel that happened. To, to open and close that one door. Yeah, that was great. They found a jewel and they needed that to get the Horn of Dagoth at that other tower. But that would be a classical – that would be just a classic example of a band of, – of a, of a cult that has organized around the artifact. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Now, here's another thing you can do, though, with artifacts and relics if you decide to use one in your campaign. And I do stress, by the way, one, you probably don't want to have multiple artifacts hopping around. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you do decide to use an artifact and relic, 
Uh, one thing you, I think that you can do to uh, really enhance your campaign is use that artifact and relic to flesh out the religions of your world or the uh, history of your world because the artifact and relic is going to play an important part in either or. Uh, so this is another, another opportunity for you as the DM to really build out your campaign world. Yeah. Well, yeah, I would, I would think like the, um, the religion of, or the followers of St. Cuthbert would be the ones like today's equivalent or the Vatican prevent, preventing everything. So that'd be a exactly. good equivalent. Yeah. And what and if you're looking for St. Cuthbert is an artifact? Yeah. What if you're looking for what? Yeah. Mesa St. Cuthbert, uh, Mesa Cuthbert right here. Mm-hmm. Word. It's like the ultimate mace of disruption. Yeah. And I like how the DMG also has incorporated some of these uh, artifacts and relics in their own fleshing out of Greyhawk. And and you can actually get some info on Greyhawk itself just by reading the artifacts and relics section of the DMG. Yeah. Because they talk about, especially you, you learn a little bit about the relationship between Vecna and Cause. Yes, you do. Because, uh, you know, uh, Kaz was the bodyguard of Vecna, and Vecna created the Sword of Kaz for him. And the sword, over time, warped uh, and, and influenced Kaz to the point where Kaz turned on Vecna. And the two battled it out, and both died as a result of it. Now, didn't they later on kind of flesh out Kaz to be kind of like a vampire lord? They did. I don't go by that. I, I never really envisioned them that way, I guess. I first read about that, and therefore, I, if anything, I see cause if, you know, if he's still around in, in my campaign, then he's a death knight. Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, but he doesn't have to be. You know, it's your campaign. Um, now, remember, when you, and another thing that I was, when we were talking about campaigns, a whole campaign arc of these uh, of a particular item and it also seemed uh, to me it seems like a few of these items are kind of built to be to where it it would almost have to be a whole kind of campaign arc like for example the the orbs of dragon kind there are eight different orbs and you're not gonna just gonna go on a quest for one. You're gonna go on a quest for all eight. What you mean? You know? Dragon Ball? Oh, sorry. No. Oh, sorry. Well, no. case in point, they did the Rod of Seven Parts. That's Rod of Seven one. Parts. There you go. Yeah, that's a campaign. Um, <laughs> that's actually a published campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, the aforementioned Eye and Hand of Vecna. Uh, you the got teeth the cr- of Dalvar Nar. Yes, the crown of might, and there's three different versions. Is there Zeptar evil good? Like, yeah, yeah, there's an evil different- good and neutral crown of might. And there's a evil, uh, I think, because there's three matching pairs of the crown, mm-hmm. the scepter, and the orb. You have the orb of might, the crown of might, and the scepter of might. Yes. But there's actually, and this is one of those rare cases, probably the only case I know of outside of, uh, you know, maybe the teeth of Dalvinar or the rod of seven parts, although those actually kind of add up to one. Uh, but the, the, the items of might, about the only time you're going to find uh, an, an artifact in three different versions, I guess. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there might, you know, but even then 
the evil version of the crown of might, there's only one of those. There's only one, uh, you know, good version of the orb of might. There's only one neutral version of the scepter of might. So again, you know, you got to keep track of where your artifacts are if you're introducing them to your game, because obviously once they're introduced, that means there's some place in your world and <clears throat> Hopefully you remember who has it, and if yeah. it, that person no longer has it, then you're going to have to figure out why that person no longer has it if you're going to reintroduce. I and mean, you obviously can reintroduce it into your campaign. It might be lost, you know. Maybe. I, I, mm-hmm. I have a question. No. Okay. No, you can no. I'm sorry. No. <laughs> I have one question is – yeah, we have a, a a good smattering of artifacts and relics in the DMG. Yes. Now, has there been any others that have been created, like in Dragon Magazine? Yeah, they have. Uh, I believe there's mention of some of the other ones in, like, I think it was, like, issue 67, 68. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think issue 82 mentions some. Uh, Don't forget the various Rollade supplements that made more artifacts, and we've read them before as well. Oh, yeah, that's true. Okay. Right. And then, of course, you have uh, several uh, modules that actually introduce them. Like, uh, uh, I found a really good website, actually, that uh, there is a person, and and he doesn't list his real name, obviously, but uh, a person had actually gone and compiled. Uh, he'd done really good research. He he went in and compiled this list of uh, of the relics and artifacts, and, and and then he mentions where they came from. Now I don't, you know, I'd have to I'd have to double check every one of these to know the veracity of it. But, but you know what? That would be something we could put in our show notes. Yeah, I can. I'll, show. That I'll would be awesome. That would be a great database. And, you know, and we can also mention his, at least his username. I hate to just take his work, you know, and not give him credit for it. Uh, but uh, say, you know, like Black Razor, that's a very famous uh, in, in the realm of D&D, uh, you know, players. Uh, a lot of players know if you say Black Razor, they're going to say, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. that's the sword that you can yeah. find in S2, White, White Plume Mountain. Yeah, it's basically the D&D version of... You know, Stormbringer. Stormbringer. Yeah, and then there's well, Gal's Wondrous Lanthorn yeah. from Lost Caverns of Sasha. Zoikanth, yeah. But Zoikanth. then again, you do have Stormbringer if you have the original copy of Deities and Demigods. That's right. If you do. Stormbringer is in there and under the Melnabonian mythos. And so is Mornblade. Yes. Another is- example, another good example of an artifact relic is Stormbringer. Yes. This is a sword that gave Elric incredible, you know, this is more than a plus one sword. This is more than a plus five sword. But not everything about it's good. In fact, right. very little bit about it is technically good, I guess you'd say. There's like a good four or five paragraphs on Stormbringer in that, um, co- in that version of Deities and Demigods. And I'm looking at it, and it actually is what they say, the huge... Black Rune Card Blade is actually a chaotic, evil, sentient being from another plane, which takes the form of a sword on the Prime Material Plane. So it's not necessarily an art. It's actually a living creature. It's a living entity. And I've read all the Elric books because I was a huge uh, fan of Elric. And, you know, at the end of it, 
you know, it, uh, I'm not going to give any spoilers away. I'll just say that it, it, it does it actually communicate well. for the first time. You know, I was a thousand times more evil than you. Uh, and it gives you an idea of, yeah, where it's coming from. But the idea here is that, and this brings up another interesting thing. Where is the source of an artifact or relic's power? Now, we've already mentioned that the source of that power could be from another dimension, say, with the, uh, you know, with the, uh, uh, da, 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 the mighty servant of Luco uh, or the Radiance. But it could also be a, uh, you know, and this is actually listed in one of the, uh, as one of the major malevolent uh, effects, I believe, is that the item itself is either a prison or a shape change form of a uh, greater being, and you know, be it, uh, be it a god or a, right there. there you go. And so, you know, every time you use it, uh, and, and every time you use those uh, those benign major benign powers or prime powers, uh, then uh, you have a chance of releasing whatever that is in that item or allowing it to resume its own form. Yes. But either way, it's not going to be good for you. Oh heck no! <laughs> um, so it's you have powered, to be very sparing. I know. The it's artifact it. is powered by love. No. This is why if you do happen to get Care Bear like, Stare. Oh, <laughs> yeah, Care Bear Stare. If you actually do, if you're if you're a player and your character is either lucky or unlucky enough, however you view it, to to come across and possess a artifact or relic, I would be I would have your character. I would highly suggest you have your character do as much research on that item as possible because as a DM, I'm not going to tell, you know, uh, no DM should ever tell the player uh, what, what the bad stuff is, at least. They shouldn't fact, tell them what I the good stuff go, is. Yeah, I would, I would go as far as saying they're going to hear rumors about a certain powerful thing, whatever it may be. I wouldn't even really reveal the name of it particularly because everybody's going to know when they hear it as far as – so hopefully they're not going to metagame it, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, so, <laughs> well, like, actually, I actually kind of ran into metagame. this. You know, I actually kind of ran into this in a way. Uh, in my friend Jeff's camp uh, campaign, there is basically an artifact, a huge artifact. We figured out what I figured out what it is, and it's not a normal. It's something of his own design. And when I figured it out, because the whole campaign, this is the whole one where we're kind of in, in realm space, where we're kind of doing a spell jammer kind of thing, mm-hmm. the quest for Bob, and one of the one of the uh, the quest for Bob, the quest for Bob. Long story. I'll tell you about it later. Is it going to be the search hey, for Bob next, or no, well, no, he has. There is a. There's silent. There, yeah, there's Bob and. Jay, but anyway, um, we used to have a god named Bob, and we had his counterpart was the god of Bob, spelled backwards. Bob. <laughs> but um, one of the things that one of the spaces that we went into was monster space, and we thought we had this really cool spell jammy ship and everything, and we, we ran into King Ghidorah basically. <laughs> from, yeah, from the Godzilla films, King Ghidorah. Yeah. Oh, Ghidra. Yeah. Monster X. Yes. Godzilla. Yeah. And so 
we found out that they were someone was de- designing something that's like a golem, and I pieced it together that it's basically whoever this uh, insane wizard basically made Mecha Godzilla. Mecha Godzilla. Hey, yeah. Mecha King Kong versus Mecha Kong was on TV yesterday. Just that I saw yeah. that. So I, I, I figured this all out because all the different pieces and, and things that we found as far as clues. And I'm like, okay, there's we found you know King Ghidra and and and, and you know we yeah. think that Godzilla's on there. But, and there's all these other ones, and I'm like, wait a minute, this guy's making Mecha Godzilla. <gasps> I'm like, no. <laughs> There's no way we're gonna defeat that. <laughs> you, you could have you could have just called Gamera to help you. Yeah, Gamera. He is friend of all children. Yes, and he's made of turtle meat. Yes, <laughs> you watched that same MST3K I did, didn't you? Oh yes, my did. gosh! Yes, <laughs> Gamera is really neat. He is full of turtle meat. Gamera. Gamera. <laughs> what is his deal with traffic accidents? <laughs> And why are those little Japanese boys always wearing those shorts? It's kind of creepy. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, well, we divert. Anyway, but, yeah, you know, yeah, I, but I, think I you're figured right. it out. And I'm like, that'd be like in the campaign. Oh, no, we're going after the hand of Anaya Vecna. Oh, no. Try as, got to be as careful as possible as a DM not to kind of like reveal too much at the very beginning of what you're going on a quest for. Yeah, unless of course there would be one. I would say there's one cav- uh, one exception on that rule, and that would be if, say, in the case of Raiders of the Lost Ark, they're essentially looking for the Lost well, Ark. I mean, yeah. they know what they're looking for; they just don't mm-hmm. know where it is. So maybe your players, you know, I, I ran, I, I used the Axe of the Dwarvish Lords one time in a, mm-hmm. in a game that I was running, uh, and it was based on the idea that uh, the uh, uh, Actually, I'm sorry. It wasn't the Axe of the Dwarf Swords. It was the uh, it was Queen Elysia's marvelous Nightingale, and it, there was a truce between the elves and the dwarves. And once every millennia, uh, you know, every century, the elves would bring the Queen Elysia's marvelous Nightingale to the dwarves, and it was the uh, dwarven god Moradin who had forged uh, Queen Elysia's marvelous Nightingale as a gift to Coralon, mm-hmm. and, it, and, and it was to seal the truce between the dwarves and the elves, oh. and so the elves would bring the marvelous Nightingale to the uh, mountain stronghold of the dwarves every th- 100,000 years, something like that. Uh, to have it kind of cleaned, I guess you would say, right? Uh, and then they would reseal, you know, they'd have a little ceremony where the dwarves gave it back to them, kind of mirroring Morden doing that for Coralon. But what happens is it gets over there and it gets stolen. Ooh. And this could have huge repercussions. Because and dwarves are accusing elves and vice versa. And 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 the thing is, it, it's at the point of the adventure, the word has not really spread out to the main elven nations yet or to the main dwarven nations yet. There's only a few people who know about this, but they're worried. They want, they, it's got to be found before the word gets out. And Gimli's there yelling, never trust an elf. Exactly. <laughs> and then you find out it was a bunch of wild elves who stole it. No, I'm just joking. Ah, but <laughs> yes. The Grugats are basically the of giving the bird to the rest of the elves and dwarves. <laughs> now it's ours. 
who's rich now? <laughs> but uh, no, nah, basically I turned it into more of a, of a mystery type uh, one where they had to find out, you know, somebody stole it. it turns out it was actually uh, agents of, of uh, both the uh, the dark elves as well as the, uh, what are they, the dark dwarves, I forgot, Durger. Duger. The Duger. Yeah. Yeah, and so basically it ends up with the party facing off against agents of both of those races ah. who want a war to erupt between the surface elves and dwarves. Ah, very cool. But the idea being that the party is more or less told up front what it is that they're looking for. Uh, they're even given a little bit of background on what its powers are, but even the elves and dwarves don't know the full extent of its powers because it's never actually been really used. Or if it, right. the last time it was really used was so long ago that even even the oldest elves no longer remember. Uh, they just know it needs to be found. <laughs> And once it is There's found, I've got to say, did anybody write this down ever? You know? <laughs> exactly. And while Queen Alicia's marvelous Nightingale tends to be one of the more uh, less uh, malevolent uh, artifacts out there, I think at least it is in my game. Uh, even then, <clears throat> the you know the party gets it. Do they want to? Even then, the beauty of this clockwork bird. You know, is, is so much that they have to they have to make some uh, some saves if they're actually going to give it up. You know, I just had another question that popped into my head about these artifacts and relics. Has there been any sort of uh, maybe table or uh, article on creating artifacts and relics? How you can make them? I don't Maybe. think – I would never let a player character make one unless – No, 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 no. I'm not talking DM, as far uh, – as a DM. No, I was going to say as a DM, I might let them do it, but – No, 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 no. I'm, I'm talking about – no, not having them create it. I'm talking about having a, as one of your toolkits as a DM for creating an artifact or relic. A step-by-step step guide you're looking for. Yeah, like a step-by-step step guide, maybe some tables, some charts and stuff like oh, that. Oh, like how you become a lich? No, how to make an artifact and relic for your campaign. Oh, you mean from an out-of-character perspective? Yeah, yeah. I'm talking as a DM. So as I, a, I yeah, I've a never particular. seen anything like that. But the closest thing, I don't think – I mean, I think it'd be pretty easy. You could simply use the same uh, five tables that you see in the DMG for the other ones. You, you could randomly roll – how many uh, malevolent effects you're going to give it, how many uh, minor benign powers, how many does it have a prime power. Or as a DM, even more easy, you simply use your own best judgment and mm -hmm. you, you pick from the you, – you could pick how many and then roll what those are based on the tables or you could actually just hand pick what you want this to have. But if you do it that way, if you do it that way – and the DMG actually does – talk about creating your own artifacts and relics now that I think of it. Uh, if you are going to do that, the DMG is very clear on this. Be very careful how you do it. Again, put a lot of thought into it because you do not want it to unbalance your game. And right. if you do do it, don't forget to give it away uh, like a nemesis power, basically. Something that can destroy it because they're all artifacts and relics can be destroyed by one thing. They're impervious yes. to everything else. I love the one where it says, like, under the foot of an ant. Yeah, of a humble ant. Yeah. Uh, or it must be uh, slammed shut in the gates of hell. Yes. You know, the gates of hell must be slammed. Or a tripped iron golem. 
doomed for where it was forged. Exactly. <laughs> Stepped on by a triple iron golem, and I think they even name it. Uh, oh, yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, here it is. Talos, a triple iron golem. That would be cool. I'd like to introduce Talos. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's an artifact almost in itself. Yeah, or it could be dropped into the well of the world, you know, and lost. Uh, buried under mountain mountain of thunder. Uh, but there there are ways, you know, like, oh, here's uh, one I liked. Uh, how about this one? Disintegrated in the putrid ichor of Jubilex's deliquescing flesh. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's like, well, like it says, drop in drop it into a it beneath one the well of time mm-hmm. the abyss number two three the earth wound for Adonais deep Adonais is deep five the spring of eternity six Morion's trench seven the living stone eight the mountain of thunder nine one hundred adult red dragon skulls or mm-hmm. ten the tree of the universe now you know nine of the ten of these that's a whole campaign on what the heck those things are. Sure. Or eight Just of the ten. Just finding the, the well thing that will time. do it. What the heck is the well of time? Well, you how know? are you going to find, uh, to sear it in the odious flames of Geron's destroyed soul? Now, yeah. that is very interesting, in fact. In fact, I, I really like that now because I'm running a game set in the Nine Hells. This That brings up whole areas of, like, do the Arc Devils... Are they like liches? Do they have phylacteries that keep their actual soul? You know, in this case, their heart. All right. I guess that's going to wrap up the show today. I think we've covered this quite enough. Uh, What do you guys think? I think we've covered all the major areas that I know of. Yeah, I think so, too. I think there's some really good uh, nuggets of information for everybody to uh, hopefully use in their campaigns. Okay, cool. So I guess that's going to be keep it original, keep it old school. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night, everyone. The Roll for Initiative podcast is a production of Wild Games Productions in association with d20radio.com. You can visit us at rfipodcast.com or contact us on our forums at osrgaming.org or even by calling us at 570-865-4210. This podcast is produced for entertainment purposes only. All other uses are prohibited. And remember, if your magic missile spell doesn't automatically hit, you're playing the wrong edition. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Roll for Initiative. Roll for Initiative.